of Islam Radio. It was for me that God caused the solar and lunar eclipses in heaven during the month of Ramadan and caused numerous other signs to be manifested on earth and thus, in accordance with divine practice, my truth was conclusively established. God, in whose hand rests my life, is my witness that if you cleanse your hearts and seek other signs from God, the Omnipotent One is capable of showing a sign according to His own will and power, without being subject to any of your importunities. And I am sure that if you demand a sign from me, with a genuine desire to repent, and promise earnestly before God that if an extraordinary sign appears which is beyond human power, you will shed all this rancor and enmity, and purely for the sake of winning God's pleasure, will enter into the pledge of bet with me, then God, being so kind and merciful, will certainly show you some sign. However, it is not within my power to fix a period of two or three days for showing a sign, or to do exactly as you wish. It is the prerogative of God to choose the time. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and peace be upon you all, everybody. Right now, we are live for the Drive Time Show on the Voice of Islam Radio. And remember, like I said, this is a live show. So you can call in 0208 687 7878 is definitely the number to call if you have something to share today or if you're social media savvy. Of course, you can also tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK or DM us on Instagram also at Voice of Islam UK. Now, we've obviously got two hours, which means we've got two topics of an hour each and it's going to get interesting because we're going to start off of course talking about right now disabilities and learning disabilities and whether our infrastructure whether our hospitals are actually doing what's required to make things easier for everyone out there we're going to be taking a look at that and also what kind of solutions the muslim world has to offer on this now of course everything that we may talk about 
is going to be factual, statistical, theoretical. But if you are driving right now, if you're at home right now, if you are someone or you know someone who has a learning disability and they have faced challenges and they are facing challenges rather on a weekly basis and you want to talk about it, you want to share about it, perhaps you have some tips for people out there. How can they make things more practical for them? Then you can, of course, please call in 0208-687-7878 because we obviously want to together get to the bottom of how we can make the lives of those people who are in a difficult situation a little bit easier if that can be done. So we're going to, of course, talk about this. We've got a number of professionals who are going to come on today to discuss this with us. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll have some kind of clearer insight into exactly what's going on. But we have to do, of course, get to the bottom of exactly what is going on right now. Just, I mean, to be honest with you, when you don't know the statistics, you don't know the figures, it's very hard to kind of comprehend how difficult these issues are, especially if you're not somebody who suffers from them yourself or if you don't have someone in your direct circle who does. And it's really important that we educate and inform ourselves on this as well. Personally speaking, the only thing that I'm aware of for myself is hyperfocus. This is something that I've had for a very long time. And to be honest with you, for a really long time, I didn't even know that I had it. And to be honest, it's really what it is. It, it, it gives me an almost a superpower to be able to focus on something really really hard but the detriment of it is that I stop focusing on other things so of course a lot of these things such as my small thing which is hyper focus is probably something that other people around us are completely oblivious to yet we carry on and you're doing what you're doing and that's why I think it's really important that the more we educate ourselves on these things the first of all it's very easy for us to first actually identify these things and then also know how to help facilitate and obviously understand someone who's actually got that as well so really we, we are talking about this for a reason right now and that is because actually around 950,000 adults and 300,000 children in England have a learning disability that's a, a quite a fair number and unfortunately many of them do not actually receive the appropriate care and we're going to talk about perhaps why this might be later on. And you know what? It might even be the case in a lot of the cases where there isn't enough education and information out there. For, or maybe perhaps people don't even have the confidence right now to, to reach out. And that also, also may be to do with the lack of outreach that we have in our facilities. But we're going to talk about this later. And according to the Learning, Learning Disabilities Mortality Review, which happened in 2019, wait for this, the average life expectancy for someone with a learning disability is 27 years shorter for women and girls and 23 years shorter for men and boys. So, I mean, I've got to stop here for, for a second. And like I said, I've only got hyper-focus. In, in, in the spectrum, I'm, I'm on a very low scale of, of, of kind of the problem that I'm dealing with or the issue that I have. But for someone who's going to be talking about things later with ADHD when you have autism and, and many other things... 27 years to 23 years is an incredibly long time. That's almost someone's entire youth, you know, the prime of your life. And, I, and, and putting that into kind of figures, you would assume, if I'm completely honest, if I didn't know, if I hadn't read up on this, and someone said to me, hey, I'm going to tell you about something right now, and it reduces your life by 23 years, 27 years, guess what it is? And if I had to take a guess right now, oh, let me let me think about it. What could it be? I'd probably be like, yo, it could be maybe you're talking about cancer. Maybe you're talking about a tumor. Maybe you're talking about something 
which is a more of a physical ailment and 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 that a very severe one as well because that's the kind of thing that would come to my mind had someone mentioned that your life is going to be shortened by 27 to 23 years it wouldn't even perhaps have come to my mind that we could be talking about a learning disability and and for me personally that in itself is strikingly enough important enough for us to have this discussion right now perhaps we do need a bit more a bit more awareness about this and perhaps we do need to step our game up as well now one study actually found that 54% of people with a learning disability struggle with mental health problems which are often overlooked now here's the thing right um uh, randomly enough i i was you know near where i live there's like a, a portable coffee van that comes from nine to one o'clock in the afternoon and i would always go past the van but i'm not really a coffee person right so i wouldn't really go and get it but one day i thought you know what let me just go and stop by and have a chat and see what's going on because it's very bizarre for a a coffee van a vendor van to come into a, a kind of private estate you know and and sell coffee it's just not something that i've seen or heard of much so i thought i'd go and have to uh, speak to the very nice lady um, and ask her what's going on and wh- how she does it. And she told me that basically she grew up in a household and herself and her daughters, uh, her sisters, later on, they got diagnosed uh, with ADHD. And I, th- I found that really interesting. That Okay, this is something that you you got diagnosed with. But she, she told me that for a very long time, I hadn't even actually gone to a doctor to get myself diagnosed. Because... When you have things like ADHD at times, or with me like hyperfocus and, and other such issues, you, you don't actually know perhaps that there is something wrong with you straight away. It might be something that a lot of people will shrug off as, oh, he or she's too energetic. Oh, he, you know, he'll get fine when he gets older. Oh, he's just, you know, he, let him play, let him, let him go outside. Or, you know, these kinds of things are probably the kinds of things that we would have heard of. And that's what she said. That's also how I felt at the time. And I think it got to a point where this lady actually um, confirmed, concealed to me the fact that as she grew up, past her childhood, things started to get a bit difficult. When you enter relationships, when you start a business, your your mind actually perhaps behaves a little bit differently to perhaps how a normal person's mind might behave. She said to me that she didn't feel like she wanted to be in a relationship and she wondered, always wondered in her life, why do I think like this, for example? And why is it that I don't, I don't want to do a nine-to-five job? Why do I want to buy a van and go around selling stuff and she and even though she went ahead and did everything it was always in the back of her mind that why am i so different to my colleagues to my friends to my family and perhaps people around her hadn't hadn't really gone that far to think about maybe there is something different about about this so she actually went and got herself diagnosed found out that she had ADHD and then they started this process of unraveling obviously why everything happened and how she got to where she was and my point in in case really is this is that we're talking about right now the fact that there's 54 percent of people that have a learning disability they they struggle with mental health and the, the, the things are obviously overlooked and i think for it to be overlooked by the healthcare system is probably a secondary process before that it's it's overlooked by the people around us who make it seem to us that it's a completely normal thing uh perhaps way we should be a bit more conscious of this we should be a bit more careful about the way that we approach our family and our friends always with the mindset that we're out to look for their betterment and a lot of us who maybe and i'm 30 now probably would not have bothered to get ourselves checked 
maybe we would have gone our whole lives thinking that there's nothing wrong with us. And perhaps it isn't wrong because like I said, for hyperfocus, for me personally, I don't even see it as uh, something that puts me down. I see it as a superpower, but that may not be the case for everybody out there. So, of course, it's important for us to, first of all, give confidence to people that if you think that there is something that you want to get checked, even if to someone else it might seem completely bizarre or completely normal, we should allow that process to happen. We don't have to normalize everything and say everything's always okay. We can get it checked out. And when you look at things, you look at past histories, things come up. This is all I learned from a very brief coffee conversation with one individual and I just feel like there's so many more people out there with their stories and if you are listening right now and you have a story of course 0208-687878 you have to call in because there is a wide spectrum of learning disabilities and of course there aren't that many people that have many of them at the same time and it's very difficult for let's say one person to know about all of them so it would be very important and very meaningful if we are able to share the different challenges and the different backgrounds that we all have to understand kind of what's going on but nevertheless like we said we're beginning to understand here that there is a sort of lack of awareness and and people with learning disabilities are often overlooked and that can cause problems later down in life like we've mentioned with relationships with businesses with work and of course left undiagnosed underdiagnosed underdiagnosed or completely left untreated due to poor understanding and awareness this is where we have actual breakdowns of mental health for example and evidence in this area and symptoms mistakenly attributed to this person's learning disability can of course be quite unprofessional so you could just be like your your mom your dad be like oh he's got this oh she's got that it's probably this like a self-diagnosis of what we would like to call in our households i'm a pakistani you know a desi analysis Oh, he's probably just got the flu. That's not a flu, mate. <laughs> Take a paracetamol, it'll fix it. No, it won't. So I think we have to go beyond this kind of nuanced, superficial conversation, making a light of everything. Uh, if we truly respect uh, the, the feelings, the understanding, the intellect of our brothers, sisters and our family, they could even be older than us. Then when they say something, we shouldn't be too dismissive or normalized about it. Maybe there is something behind what they're saying. Maybe we should really take it for face value and allow them to investigate it and process that. And maps, that's probably one way that they could probably be helped better than what we can do right now. Anyway, that's enough of my blabbering. We do actually have a number of guest callers that we're going to have with us today. And right now, we are joined right now as well with uh, one of our guests, who is Dorothy. And we've got um, a lot of questions to ask you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. Um, Dorothy, Thank obviously you. you're with um, the Sunny Bank Project. And of course, I'm sure a lot of people don't know perhaps what that is right now. But we are, of course, talking right now about learning disabilities. What does Sunny Bank actually do? And with regards to learning disabilities, what is your objective? Thank you for um, thank you for having me on, and thank you for um, the first question. Um, the Sunnybank Trust. Um, we work in Surrey. We work with adults with learning disabilities. That's mm-hmm. anybody over the age of eighteen. We provide advocacy. We provide a range of social clubs and opportunities. A transition scheme for young adults between eighteen and thirty, mm-hmm. really, who are trying to get their you know work out who they are. Their 
their right. community resilience skills. Um, we have a radio show. Uh, oh, wow. And um, we've also uh, launched a business consultancy called Understand Us, which is basically a group of consultants who have a lived experience of a learning disability, or they have a learning disability, who work with organisations, companies, businesses to make uh, help them make their businesses services more accessible for people with a learning disability. Okay. I mean, you are the CEO of Sunnybank. You just mentioned that you do radio shows, you do other kinds of awareness. I've got a bit of an offshoot question. What actually inspired you to do that in the first place? That's that's really not on my list of questions you were going to ask me. No, I thought I'd throw you off, but you you don't have to answer it. I just feel like this is Um, such a noble cause. But it takes a lot of effort and a lot of consciousness to approach something like this so it, is I, it- I think this is the most extraordinary community of people i've ever worked with in my life um, right. they are one of the most marginalized they're the most isolated mm. and they have so much to teach all of us um, wow, that's powerful well learning disability uh, the medical term is that it is an iq of 70 or less okay but what I would challenge is that doesn't include or cover wisdom. And right. um, within this, this community, you know, I, I've never seen so much resilience and so much hardship mm. that they, they just deal with. And um, I, I feel very passionate because I think they have things to say, very important things. And they have, wow. they need a stronger voice in our community. Wow. And so... The work we try and do um, is we try to provide every opportunity for them to speak directly, to have their voice heard. I was hoping, we were trying this afternoon to have one of our partners, that's Mm. what we call um, the people we support, one of our partners with me on the interview. And the the logistics got too difficult, which is very typical of the kind of barriers that this this group and the community face. I'm, I'm really glad, though, that you are able to to come here though and still represent because what you're telling me today it's, it's almost as if that your partners that you represent and, and that you're coming on you're talking about how through the kind of things that they've has to have to face their character building and their wisdom and their perspective on things is incredibly valuable and very powerful and, and you're almost presenting this as if yeah their voice definitely needs to be heard but for a lot of the listeners who aren't able to let's say relate to this from a personal perspective, what are some of the common barriers that are actually faced by, by some of your partners when it comes to learning disabilities and also accessing healthcare in particular? Um, the barriers, I mean, some of the barriers sound very straightforward, but hmm. they are huge. So things like a lack of accessible transport links, yeah. how you get, how you can get to a doctor's or a GP or a hospital, how you can navigate the transport system. For a lot of people with learning disability, transport is huge. It's a huge challenge. Patients not being identified as having a learning disability. So if somebody does come along to the doctor's or the hospital, if, if it's not on their records they have a learning disability Hmm. where they need extra time to understand things, where they might need a quieter space. If those things aren't 
you know, recorded, then it's very difficult to be able to make sure that that uh that appointment is going to you know achieve what it's set out to do a, a lot of staff ha- have very little training or understanding about a learning disability um mm. and and just throwing it in but within the wider society there is a massive unconscious bias around learning disability yeah. where people don't think you know might not necessarily feel that that understanding is there but with a few adjustments like extra time simpler language you know that can make a huge difference um failure to make a correct diagnosis often um and and i can speak from the heart from having experienced this where somebody has not had the correct diagnosis because they have not been able to have the time or or the right way to communicate Mm. what the issues are. So what can be seen as simply um, a constipation could actually be masking bowel cancer. Wow. You know, those, those, those things. And that is, that is a, a direct example mm. of, of where a misdiagnosis was made. Anxiety or a lack of confidence mm. uh, for people with a learning disability going to the doctors, not sure mm. what's going to happen, having to navigate around the, uh, you know, clocking in your name for your appointment on the computer, right. where it asks you what's your date of birth. That's a really difficult question for some people. So that's mm. another thing. Lack of joint up working from different care providers where, you know, something might be happening for that person, but the support that is there for that person doesn't communicate that to the other groups that are supporting that person. And that often can lead to kind of uh, miscommunication. Wow. Um, yeah, you know, the, the barriers are huge. Um, I, I think that the big ones are just allowing enough time, communication, making sure that person feels comfortable to be able to talk to a doctor. Um, yeah, so that, that's some of the barriers. And, 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 and as, you, as you've mentioned, to a lot of people, they may not seem like barriers, but this is, the, this is the case that you've mentioned it. Uh, and it's almost as, you mentioned a lot of things, actually. You've spoken yeah. about, and it seems to yeah. me like that there is a a lot of different catalysts behind why perhaps these challenges are there. Uh, there, Mm. There's things that mainly you've talked about giving the time to listen. There's a lot of people that would think even 10 times before going to a doctor because of the millions of things that that they may have to face, Uh, which which perhaps another person may not even think of once. So it's all of, uh, and perhaps a lot of this is about awareness or, but here's the thing, right? Uh, Is it just about awareness or is it about, training or education because growing up here uh, in primary schools secondary schools I, I knew people i i had actually family close family that were, were going to sen schools uh, in my you know and, and i wasn't i knew them i knew of them but i don't actually consciously ever remember a time where we were necessarily educated about the issue i don't know if things have changed now or perhaps in a way that we were made aware that this is something that's there. And is, is this something that needs to be done or is it something that's being rolled out at the moment? Or what else can kind of be done? Um, um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one shocking statistic that people with a learning disability are likely to die on average 23 yeah. years younger than the general population. Wow. Um, people with a learning disability are more likely double uh 
most likely to suffer or experience mental health issues to the general population. Again, that's another high one. Um, But I think what your point was, um, I think training, I think education. I mean, recently the Health Services Safety Investigation Body highlighted that many staff in hospitals do not receive the right training or are equipped with the right skills to support or meet the needs of patients with a learning disability. That, okay. That's just within one, one group. Yeah. I mean, I think awareness, um, because obviously, you know, all community groups that face any kind of unconscious uh, bias or discrimination know that, you know, to tackle that, you need to be talking, you need to be raising awareness, you need to be engaging with people. So that very much needs to be done at every level. Okay. I think the next level is the education yep. and the training, you know, for professionals, training, giving them the toolkit to okay. know how to work with that person. Absolutely. From a professional perspective, at the very you know basic level, that's something that we should hopefully expect to happen. Um, yeah. We spoke about in the beginning as a little bit about the socioeconomic and cultural factors as well especially let's say within a south asian ethnicity where i belong to even i can i can vouch for that where sometimes not only are things overlooked they might be stigmatized they might be normalized they Mm -hmm. might even be ridiculed Um, Mm -hmm. and this is obviously something which hopefully i think over time with education and awareness may be improving but what can we actually do to actually really target this from a socioeconomic position and also when it comes to various cultures and how they view learning disabilities? I mean, interestingly, um, I was reading, in fact, the other day there was a report and it was saying that um, the mortality of uh, people from um, cultural groups and and ethnic uh, communities is much higher than from the white community. So that kind of highlights what you've just said. Mm. Um, I think in terms of you know, we, we are a tiny grassroots organisation. We are desperate to engage with with other community groups. We are so keen because, you know, again, it's that, that conversation. It's about how can we support you within the context of, of, of what your values and how you work. Mm. So I, I think that that, again, goes back to the awareness. I think, uh, you know, toolkits like you know, allowing people to understand accessible information. Sorry, that was my computer. <laughs> information information that, you know, things where you don't have complicated words, that, that are images, you know, things right. like that are really simple to, to do. But, you know, whatever group you're in, you can customise that to, to work for, the, for, for that, you know, that person with a learning disability Definitely. in that community. So I think it is about, you know, it is about that, that dialogue, that conversation um, amongst community groups to say, how can we make this better? How can we really resource and support you with, you know, those people in your community who have a learning disability who probably have so much more to give and so much more to gain? Um, So I think it is, it's the awareness, um, it's the support. Um, One of the kind of big things is multi-agency working you know any support around a person with a learning disability the more people that are talking who support that person the better the outcome is going to be and that involves families that involves you know local gp that involves if, if social services are involved they might not be you know but it's involving the key people around mm-hmm. that person absolutely so yeah well dorothy that's really really 
meaningful and beneficial insight I'm sure that a lot of the viewers as well have got their thinking hats on now as well how, as to how they can be aware of themselves what can they do in their professional environments around them so yeah thank you very much Dorothy for coming on to the Drive Time Show and letting us know about that and we hope to speak to you again soon thank you thank very much thank you it's, it's been a privilege thank uh, you. likewise thank you very much that Bye-bye. was Dorothy. Bye. that was Dorothy Watson who was the CEO of the Sunny Bank Trust and she's been telling us about the wonderful initiatives that they have going on trying to instill within us some kind of awareness and understanding uh, with with regards to people who have learning disabilities and I think a lot of it is really down to awareness education and training uh, at the moment uh, from what Dorothy's been saying it seems like we first need to target the professional industries of course if uh, someone with a learning disability is going to a doctor and, and you know perhaps they're being misdiagnosed or they're not being diagnosed at all uh, that is obviously very concerning and the fact that you are being misdiagnosed, it's very dangerous. It could be the fact that you go through your whole life thinking that there is something wrong with you or nothing wrong with you. And it turns out to not be the truth. And this is obviously where, where, where of course, we need to start. But it's getting me thinking because, yes, professional industry is important. But how about we also start educating our children from a very young age as well, whether that's through schools, whether that's through parents. It's something that we really need to think about. Um, and like like Dorothy said as well, yeah, it's about giving time to these things. And the more we give time, the more we give respect to it, it's really important. One thing, though, that really, really struck me from kind of what Dorothy said in the beginning, in the very beginning, is that while she's been working with her partners, uh, she said that her partners who have learning disabilities, they have a lot to teach her. Uh, this is profound. This is absolutely profound. I'm, I'm going to just say this quite bluntly. I feel like there will probably be a lot of people who would look at people with learning disabilities and just write them off. That what has this person got to offer? Because like Dorothy said, a person who's uh, considered SEN or or with, an, with a learning disability is someone below IQ of 70. But Dorothy challenged that. She said that, well, an IQ perhaps isn't necessarily representative of wisdom. And it seems to me very clearly that whether it's a person with a learning disability, whether it's a person with a physical ailment, or whether it's a person that's going through some other kind of challenging thing in their life, which they are having to navigate and successfully are doing so, then that person has a lot of wisdom a lot of expertise, a lot of insight and perspective to offer. And and that's what I strongly feel. So when Dorothy said that not only do we need to be aware of how we can help these people and how we can give them a voice, but we also need to be aware of allowing them to have a voice to help others as well. You know, I feel like sometimes helping someone isn't just about holding them, holding their hand and letting them up, but it's also about making them feel meaningful and contribute, contributive as well. And here, the reality is that they are and they can be because they have so much to offer. Their resilience, their willpower, their determination, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's quite awesome, let's, say, but let's put it that way, because if you have someone who does have ADHD, who has autism, but they're chugging along, and they're going to. I mean, I, I know, I know, I know a few youngsters that I have in my circle who 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 have this, and you know they're going to university. They're, they're going to teach, and 
for me, I, I look at that and I say, that's really, really amazing because they have challenges like Dorothy explained to us that we probably don't even think about. When they get up in the morning, it's about the small things. I have to go out, I have to meet people and we have to interact with them. They're going to ask me things and perhaps I'll get anxious, perhaps I won't know how to answer it. And a lot of us, especially for, for like someone like me who just doesn't know when to stop talking, um, perhaps I don't think about these things. So for someone who has these challenges and they're getting along with it, they have a lot to offer when it comes to this kind of insight. But again, like I said, I don't know when to stop talking. So I probably should stop talking right now. We do have on the line with us Samantha, Siraj and, and Aisha as well, um, who are going to be speaking to us right now uh, with regards to learning disabilities. Um, Samantha is actually the chief executive at Learning Disability England. Uh, Siraj is the senior quality of life facilitator at Changing Our Lives. And Aisha Edwards is the Lewisham People's Parliament representative so it's actually a very huge privilege for me right now to be able to have all of you on at the same time assalamu alaikum warahmatullah peace be upon you how are you all doing today hi thanks all. for having us thank you very much so, yeah thank you <laughs> well, I, I could already feel the energy buzzing so let's get this going obviously we've just had a kind of really in-depth talk with dorothy who's given us like I said, the most profound thing that I learned from Dorothy is right. that her partners have a lot yeah. to teach us. And I really love that, actually, to be honest. But we're going to, of course, talk about talk to you guys first about your initiatives, what you're doing. Um, and let's, let's kind of learn a little bit from you as well. So, Samantha, we'll start with you. Um, how does Learning Disability England empower individuals with learning disabilities to champion self-advocacy? This is the key thing that we discussed just now. How are we doing that? Ah, great. Thank you. Well, I guess I shouldn't speak very long because one of the really important ways that we do it hmm. is that we help people speak for themselves. Right. And that's why Siraj and Aisha are with me today. Wonderful. Is my job is not to speak and represent people, but to help them get in the situation to be able to speak to you today. Absolutely. And amazing. others. So at the heart of what Learn to Put England believes is that people are in charge of their own lives and that it's our job to help them do that. So that's why today I'm here with Siraj and Aisha and hopefully I'll remember to stop speaking now. <laughs> this is absolutely wonderful. I mean, this is like the most perfect response that I could have dreamed of. I mean, this is, this is basically action speaking louder than words, but also... This proof is in the pudding because right now, um, as we've mentioned, uh, Samantha, we have Siraj and Aisha with us right now. So, yeah. Siraj, um, tell us about your project as well. We deserve better. Yeah. Uh, focused on challenging health inequalities due to racism and prejudice. So could you share with us your journey and your key learnings from that? Can you hear me? We can definitely hear you loud and clear. Thank you All very right. much. All right. And so, so this report was yeah, about, was about oh. uh, it's always been helpful. People from my identity, ethnic communities, with related disabilities. So the main things were for me was about racism, about how uh, when people from black minority, ethnic communities, uh, I said healthcare, how, how racism affects their, their access to healthcare. Um, Siraj, I mean, to be honest with you, your energy, your passion, 
your motivation, yeah. your confidence. It's something that I wish, I wish that I could even have that. And this is this is kind of what I'm already learning. You see, because the thing is, I, I do this radio presenting. I've been doing it for a long time. And I think for, perhaps for me, it took a long time for me to come out of my show. But you are there right now and you're, and you're showing me that this is something that you're, you're doing. And this is what I was saying when I, when I learned from Dorothy that there is so much that there is to offer. There is really something to offer. And Samantha, I'm really thankful for you, for you today as well for, for bringing yourself on as well and Siraj as well. And Aisha, we're going to also come to you next as well. Um, what role does community engagement play in empowering carers and families to advocate for individuals with learning disabilities? Uh, we did speak a little bit with Dorothy about this as well. Would you care to share with us yeah. as well? Yeah, um, for me, it's just really important to have that key figure. I've been doing this for a long time. And for me, I just want better for my people, like the carers hmm. and just everyone. Okay. It could just be a small little thing, but that small little thing might make might make the biggest of difference. Right. You know? So just for me, I would like to see that, you know? I'm really passionate about people like that, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, and and I think this is this is really about community. This is really about networking and us coming together, whether yeah. it's professionals, whether it's family, whether mm -hmm. it's schools, really allowing us to first understand and then empower yeah. as well. And of course, we're talking right now about Learning Disability England as well. So, how does Learning Disability England facilitate connections and mutual support among families facing similar challenges? Yeah, so, so Learn to Speak England is a membership organisation and um, anybody who um, we exist to support people to live their good life, whatever their good life is, and to help make mm. the changes that make that happen. So people and organisations mm. can join. So a big part of being um, of the membership are community organisations right. like the one that Siraj works for. So okay. Siraj works for Changing Our Lives in the yeah. West Midlands, which is a human rights organisation that does loads of important work to help people um, connect, tackle issues, um, those things. But also smaller um, user-led or self-advocacy organisations that might be from all over the country, as well as really big support provider organisations that might give people formal support. So we kind of exist to bring those different experiences together alongside families and help us work out the solutions together. Wonderful. So um, we try and create that network, that shared um, uh, understanding, that shared opportunity. And like Siraj says, you know, part of the We Deserve, Pro um, we Deserve Better project was about trying to understand the role of racism in people's experiences, but also how does that connect with intersectionality? Yeah. How does that connect with mm. people's ethnicity and right. culture? Yeah. I mean, and, and help understand that. You're absolutely right. I mean, I mean personally, yeah, uh, I'm a Pakistani. So I, I don't know, everybody would probably have their own experiences and on the way, and, and you know, perspectives on how, on how learning disabilities are approached culture to culture and I, I really find hope and positivity in your messages today that you're bringing yourselves forward to challenge stigmas to challenge the lack of awareness challenge the lack of education and I really applaud you for that and I also have heard I've been told about the good lives framework Samantha um, what is this exactly and how is this challenging a, a, a you know creating a, a, a positive change in society 
So the Good Lives Framework is just um, is a way of us bringing together um, what people with learned disabilities um, have said will help them live a good life, what's most mm. important mm. to work on, to give us all the positive action we can take to help make that happen. So mm. that might be campaigning, but that might okay. also be changing a service. So, for example, mm. like, Siraj is a... Um, a senior quality of um, life assessor, he goes out and checks how services are working right. for people. Okay. So, he, you know, people doing work like Siraj's will bring us back, us as in the bigger community, not just Learn to England, bring mm-hmm. us back what really matters to people. Mm-hmm. Aisha is, um, is, a, is on Louis and People's Parliament. They talk about people, the reality of people's lives and what they want to see change or what's really working. And Good Lives is just a way of bringing that together from across the country to give us all a focus that keeps us going in the same direction. Well, I'm really glad, uh, Samantha, Siraj, Aisha, you've called in today because I feel like you pumped us with this positivity. You pumped us with this energy that, yes, we can do something about it. All it takes is for us to want to listen and to want to actually work together. So thank you very much for coming up with this message. And we hope and we pray and we actually want to facilitate that, that you can carry on your work and we can see some change starting locally, hopefully nationally, and we get that conversation going. Thank you very much for coming and we hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Peace be upon you. Have a great, wonderful day, all of you. Thank you very much. That was... That, that was actually three wonderful guests that we just had right now. We had Samantha Clark, who is the Chief Executive at Learning Disability England. And now we had with us Siraj as well, who is a Senior Quality of Life Facilitator at Changing Our Lives. And then we had Aisha Edwards, who is at the Lewisham People's Parliament. She's representative with them. So that's just, re- as, you, as you guys would have heard it, I don't think I really need to explain it first. Samantha first on came on, said, you know, we were talking about advocacy, empowering people with learning disabilities because they have a lot to offer. They have energy, they have wisdom, they have perspective. And then they came on and they just did that. They came on and they just showed that this isn't just some theoretical jargon that we're talking about. Maybe, maybe they can do it. No, they are doing it. They're already doing it. And they will, God willing, continue to do that. So this is something that I'm really happy that we've been able to have with us today. We have actually... We've had a lot of talks today. We've got with us another guest today. We've got Brother Qayyum Rashid, who's on with the call with us right now. Um, Salaamu Alaikum wa Allah. Peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Kamar. Peace be on you too. Thank you for having me. So wonderful. I mean, of course, I, I, I hope you've probably been listening into what's kind of going on. We've been talking about learning disabilities, the partners that these organizations and charities are working with and of course there's a lot of perspective that people have to offer on this whether it's from a professional background or from a personal background what do you have to say um uh, yes i have been listening fantastic callers and and um uh, you know some excellent points raised hmm. i kind of wanted to um raise the, the the a point about the first guest right um, who talked about community um, and how how important it is within community to have awareness of learning disability. Yeah. And I know within the Amdi um, Muslim community, okay. especially within the, uh, the the ladies' auxiliary organisation, some of the best um, um, uh, professionals um, have got together um, and they've created something called Send. 
right. um, uh, in which people from all walks of life, from senior positions to all the way down to um, to just carers, um, volunteer um, within this organisation and support parents within the community. Hmm. But I, I wanted to the, the point I wanted to raise is it's fantastic that so many um, positive things are happening, but we shouldn't. Um, um, we should also highlight the the, the challenges that get faced hmm. uh, by people um, who have a lack of knowledge when it comes to learning disability. Because learning disability is one of those um, one of those things where you, you know there, there's no sign for it. People when they, people talk of disability, yeah. um, people see just a sign on a wheelchair. Yeah, a yeah. lot of learning disability is invisible. Right. So people. People don't get to know who has a learning disability or Absolutely. not, and that within itself creates a prejudice. Hmm. However, you know, from a community point of view, it is so important that parents um, are aware of the rights of their family member, be it a child or be it an adult. It is the responsibility and it should be spoken of as part and parcel of a parenting skill we live in a country where there's so much available hmm. that there should never be an excuse why a parent does not know um, where to go and, and what kind of information they require um, in order to aid and assist um, the, 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 their family member who might have a learning disability. Hmm. And there is a, a lot of prejudice, which is changing, but it, it's something that needs to be recognized because unless you recognize it, there will never be a facility, there will never be a platform in which you'll be able to improve that. Absolutely. So, I mean, you're, you're almost talking, I mean, we spoke with Dorothy before, uh, talking about the professional workplace. Of course, awareness, education, training needs to be given to, let's say, healthcare providers. It needs to be given to teachers. But perhaps the initiative needs to be taken much closer to home as well when it comes to parents. It, it must be. It's the starting point because before your family member is in touch with a professional, yeah. they're going to be, and even if, even, if even if you were to be in touch with a professional, it will be a family member hmm. who will be doing the advocacy for the, for the individual. Yeah, there will be the problem. And of course, yeah. I'm talking about a certain extreme of learning disability. A lot of learning disability, again, the spectrum is so broad that, uh, you know, um, it, it's infinite. Hmm. Um, uh, the, the spectrum learning disability can be so many different things. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. But it right. is up to the parent to it's, it's up to the parent to identify that. Do you know what's interesting though, Kayum? Uh, you mentioned this. I, I think a lot of our conversation, not just with you, uh, with maybe the other guests as well, has been with you know the parents need to be on the lookout for the children, and the parents need to be careful, and they need to be aware. And and, and it comes to my mind that if I think about around me as well, <laughs> I have. People, let's say, within my family, within my close circle, who I can see that perhaps they should go and get themselves checked out, but they're yep. actually a lot older. They're probably 50, yep. 60, 70. But the thing is, when I've tried to speak to them at times, unfortunately, our cultural positioning and our, let's say, awareness on the issue has been such that they don't feel even confident or they don't even feel that it's right that they should be going to get help or, or, or education about I, this. I tell you why. I tell you why. I am a fa- I am a father of a 30-year-old now okay. who has learning disabilities. Okay. Now, and I, I've experienced this for past 30 odd years. Hmm. The reason why, because there's a stigma attached to it, and one of the most common 
reasons is denial. Ah. It is very difficult okay. to accept right. that, oh, a family member, be it a child, be it a brother, be it a sister, that, oh, th there might be a learned disability. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and, of course, there is a stigma attached. Okay. There is this, uh, the, 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 you know, if you are not aware of something, there will be an automatic fear of it. Yeah. And the only way to deal with that fear is, is to learn about it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that doesn't seem to happen. Okay. But from a community point of view and from a, from a cultural subcontinental point of view, one thing I will kind of give credit to is to, to, to the women of, of, of the Asian community or subcontinental community because they're always positive. There's always positivity um, that comes, but there is such a lack of um, engagement from the men within the community towards learning disability. And that really needs to change. I think I see this. I think there is, a, you, you've mentioned kind of denial. And I, I've also seen yep. where I would almost term it as macho mentality that, no, you know what? There's nothing wrong with me. Oh, there's nothing wrong with my son or my brother. Because we're, we're men, we're, we're indestructible. And I think to some degree, uh, that kind of mindset perhaps isn't really helpful. To, to, it is, Brother Kamran, well. let me tell you the one common thing I hear, I've been hearing for 30 years. Uh, don't worry, she will grow out of it. Huh, it's yeah. a disability. It's a disability. Hmm, 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 hmm. It is, that's, that's who they are. Yeah. And this, this notion that people automatically think disabled means they can't do anything. Hmm. That, that is not the truth. I mean, Disability it, doesn't mean they're not, in, they're not able to do things. I mean, Qayyum, you've, you've spoken about the fact that you, you yourself are a parent. And perhaps yeah. we do need a message from someone like you. To, to, perhaps there are a lot of parents out there who, in their, in their mindset, are, are thinking that by them being silent or ignoring it in some way that constitutes to them truly being a loving parent, a, a caring parent, and perhaps at the heart of it, they may feel that way. Are, are they, or perhaps are there better ways that they can address it and what, what should that it. be? Talk about it. Okay. Don't be ashamed. And, and don't, don't have pity. Don't be ashamed. I've, I've been a very active father for 30 years. So is my wife. So is my, my other children. It's, it's that's who, if we have a person in our family who happens to have a learning disability, mm. that's, who, that's her identity. Yeah. It isn't for me to redefine that identity. That's who she is. Right. So I need to, like with other um, skill sets or other shortcomings of your other yeah. children, you, do, you, you treat them for who they are. You don't change the narrative, do you? Absolutely. You don't change their personality. Mm -hmm. You don't change who they are. And, and one thing, my last thing, what I would say is a lot of people, I, I hear it. Oh, you have a child with disability. It must be so difficult. Mm. It must be so challenging. The, having my child being referred to as a challenge is not nice. It is the circumstances which are challenging, not the individual. Hmm. You must always separate hmm. the, the, the circumstances and the challenges that come with a certain disability from hmm. the individual. Hmm. It's not that individual who is causing the challenges because that's who they are. Yeah. I, I mean, Kuyumi, you mentioned this in a, such a beautiful way. And in fact, perhaps everyone has challenges of their own anyway, regardless. But you've mentioned this exactly. in a way, Dorothy's mentioned it in the beginning, that um, we need to give people like this a voice, not only to help them, 
But to actually show the world, hey, they can do their own stuff as well, provided that we give them the right platform and the right education and the right path, basically. And, I, and there might be a but lot of parents out there that they may not even be parents um, who, if they hear about like what you said, they might go into denial. They might go into a macho mentality. Um, and maybe a state of hopelessness that my child won't be able to do anything. We know we had right now, before we had you on the line, we had with us uh, Siraj and Aisha, who came on. That's right, yes. Uh, and very powerfully spoken, they are themselves, yep. as partners, advocating for learning disability themselves. They're doing it. They're showing it that it can be done. Now, y- you, as a parent, of course, can you give some insight into those people who are listening who might be like, well... As you've said, well, they don't detach. The, the most, the, they say that the, maybe the most, my child's done for. Is that? Of course, that's not the case. No, because that's your thinking. So how do you we? Are, how do we? You are that? relaying your. You're relaying. What you're doing is you're projecting your fears huh. onto someone else when you don't even know the capacity and the capability right. of your child because you've never bothered to go to a doctor. You've never looked at a, 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 a right. taken them to an educational psychologist. There are so many different realms. Um, uh, of of expertise that you can go and tap into. Yeah, like first before. find out exactly. Do not project your fears, which which are normal. I'm not saying your fears are not normal, mm. but I'm saying don't project your fear as a parent, where to such a degree that you are affecting the quality of life of your loved one. Mm. Okay. And and one thing, look, it is there is a sacrifice. One thing people never talk about carers do make a sacrifice and that sacrifice isn't that oh um, they're giving up time no the sacrifice is that they are taking time out to learn about the individual they're caring for in accordance with the need of the person who needs caring not to the need of the carer Hmm. wow powerful two very different things absolutely this is uh, quite yep. profound, and I'm really glad that you chose to call in today. I, I really am, because this is, um, like we said in the beginning, there's a lot of theories, statistics, figures that you can put on these things. But it and really... Kamar, your, your brother Kamar, you're the best person to, to, to kind of correct me here, where God Almighty has said, in life where, I, where, where you suffer, where, where I have given you challenges, I will also provide you um, resources to deal with those challenges. Absolutely. This is it. This is the Islamic take on these things. And actually, now that you mentioned it, we might as well go on to that. But Kayum, so I'll let I'll let you know, go because you've really just thank you been on the line, man. You've really just you know for me, I'm gonna go home now. I'm gonna be thinking about this for a long, long time. Everything that you've just said. So thank you so much for your time. God bless you have a good for coming day. on and have a good day. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Thank you. So that was brother Kayum, actually a presenter with us on the Drive Time Show in a very kind of personal way has been able to give us some insight which you're not going to find that online by the way you're not going to find that anywhere so if you want to have to re-watch this or re-listen to this show go ahead and do it because this is where you're going to get that information now we as Qayyum left he, he said a lot of things but one thing he definitely mentioned is that we must look at this from an Islamic perspective as well I mean we've spoken about culture we've spoken about statistics what does Islam say does Islam also look down on this does Islam as Qayyum uh, mentioned it does it look as look at this as some kind of destroyed life now you're you're, you're a failure you're, you're, you're nothing your parents need to look at you negatively what is it really like and what we see here is that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who was the founder of Islam um, 
It is reported that Atab bin Abi Rabah reported that Ibn Abbas asked me whether I would like him to show me a woman who would go to paradise. And when I answered in the affirmative, he said, this black woman came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I suffer from epilepsy and during fits, my body becomes uncovered. Please invoke Allah for me. So the Prophet ﷺ replied, listen to this reply. He said, if you wish to endure it patiently, your reward will be paradise. Or if you wish, I shall pray to Allah to cure you. And he asked this question, do you want to be cured? She said, I shall endure it. Then she added, but my body becomes exposed, so pray to Allah that it may not happen. The Prophet ﷺ said, yes, I will pray for that. And he prayed for such a thing. Now here's what the Prophet did. He didn't respond to her and say, oh no, that's a really bad thing. Let me, let me get rid of that for you right now. The Prophet, peace be upon him, looked at that challenge or Qayyum even mentioned that this is something which is separate to her. So that challenge is separate to her. But looked at it as something that would get her to paradise. So therefore, he didn't necessarily advocate to her to say, hey, get rid of it. And this is something which I find quite profound as well. And in life, we all have challenges. Some of us have learning disabilities. Some of us have physical ailments. Others have different challenges. And by God, they are meant to bring out the best in us if we have the positive mindset, if we are able to attack them rather than ignore them, as Brother Qayyum said to us, we can come off better off. And the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, has mentioned further on this. He says that, who is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the people who pass through hardships or who are troubled for the sake of God will be amply rewarded by him in the next world. So far as this world is concerned, it is a transitory place. People have not to live here for all the time. If somebody has means available to him, which are a source of pleasure to him, it is really nothing for him to feel exalted. Whatever is there in this world, means of comfort or hardships are to come to an end. Thereafter, there is a life which is eternal. Whatever we face, whatever body we have, whatever body we don't have, it's temporary. But it is for now. But the ultimate objective is that we use it as a means to maximize our potential rather than giving up or rather than instilling within our children a mindset that they should give up or our family that they should give up. So when we, at the very least, the one thing that we can learn from today's show is this. If you know somebody who has a learning disability, they must feel empowered. They must feel like they can do something because they can. And that is the mindset that we must instill and support them all the way through. That's the end of this hour. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back after the break to talk about media misinformation, particularly with regards to the Israel-Palestine situation. We'll see you then.
أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum rahmatullah and peace be upon you all everyone we're back now for the final hour of today's drive time show and we're talking about disinformation and the media and obviously we right now are talking about israel and palestine and before we even get into this disinformation topic uh, and it kind of is related to it by the way this show's live 0208 687 7878 If you agree with me, call in. If you disagree with me, call in. Let's do this. Like I said, disinformation is a big topic right now. We have all of it going on right now. It's a big circus on social media right now. You've got people that are posting fake stuff. You've got people that are telling the truth and they're getting censored. You've got people that are misreporting. You've got people that are posting things from 10 years ago and it's just all a big mess. How on earth are we supposed to navigate what is true, what isn't true, and who exactly is telling us the stories. So, like I said before we get into this, I've got to tell you my story as well because it's not just me actually. I've got my own Instagram account. I love to be vocal about issues. I've I've seen other Muslim influencers out there who for the past week have been getting messages whether it's from Instagram or others that they have suddenly been restricted. And what that means is is that their content will not be visible on search results. Their account will not be visible on search results. and to non-followers as well. So that means we're basically just sitting ducks and no matter what we say no one's going to see it. Of course this is censorship at its finest. And it's very interesting because we need to understand kind of why on earth this is happening. I mean right now we have Elon Musk who of course is a CEO of X, massive shareholder in that and has actually been at the forefront right now of visiting Israel recently. There's a picture of him going around actually uh looking at uh, the picture of an empty baby's cot uh, which is obviously blood stained and he's standing next to no none else than Netanyahu and this picture of course has probably sparked a bit of question among people okay he's he's there is he going to go to Gaza as well why is he standing next to Netanyahu what on earth is going on and it's it's important to understand these things because obviously Elon is the CEO of X he controls the narrative on X he controls the 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 narrative the algorithm whether anybody likes it or not and what we know for sure is this that in the past few weeks there are certain companies that have stopped advertising on X who are they apple comcast disney european commission the ibm lionsgate paramount and warner brothers oh no and x may lose up to 75 million dollars in revenue as more advertisers pull out as well and the white house has criticized elon musk over its hideous anti-semitic lie which we won't go into right now but that is the headline that's right there for you to see and then suddenly Elon Musk out of his great morality decides that you know what I should probably pay a visit to Israel to go and see this baby cot of course that's going to be the roast right thing to do right now it's very telling if you look into these things who controls the narratives and what exactly is going on behind the scenes where the pressure is coming from and what's going to happen next we can see that's the case of x with instagram we've already spoken about number 1 the the countless pro palestinian accounts that are being restricted uh without even a warning 
uh, accounts of videos being deleted. I mean, from people are growing from hundreds of thousands of views, millions of views, to tens of thousands or just thousands of views, from hundreds or, or thousands of followers a day to perhaps maybe one or two followers a day or maybe negative followers a day. And this is a change which is not being, un, you know, it's not, it cannot be undeniable. And in fact, on Twitter, we're hearing reports of accounts which are being mass followed by bots, accounts which are fake, so that then other accounts can then report those accounts for having those fake bots in the first place. Who on earth is issuing or paying for these bot accounts to follow these pro-Palestinian accounts? We don't know at the moment, but what we do know is that it is happening. You then have, of course, a lot of money being spent right now on children being bombed in Gaza by Israel. It is the case that is happening right now. But there is also a lot of money being spent by the Israeli foreign affairs on what exactly? On propaganda. We have roughly seven to eight million pounds. That's a, that's a minimum. Actually, I think it's more than that. I think it's actually 21 million dollars, sorry, that are being spent by them on YouTube alone to do paid promotions on videos supporting their narrative. And that gets you roughly 1.5 billion impressions. So you can do the maths on that. And this is absolutely phenomenal. That's just YouTube, right? So you can just imagine there's a huge financial push to this. We also heard that in America a couple of days ago, there was a protest that people were being paid to attend. It was a pro-Israeli rally that happened there as well. And this is all being a concerted effort to feed people a certain narrative, a certain kind of information, and certain people are being restricted to block a certain narrative and to block certain information. But the irony is that, of course, there are, in fact, here in London, weekly protests which kind of negate the effort and a lot of influencers out there that continue to make videos anyway. Anyway, that's enough of my rant for right now. Of course, we're going to be having a lot of expert guests with us today to give us their insight on the issue and we have with us right now Basma Adduhi who is going to be talking to us right now who is a Palestinian academic, human rights activist and humanitarian practitioner for more than 14 years in humanitarian and development work with displaced people with UN agencies and international NGOs in the MENA and the UK. And of course, 14 years is a long time, but for a lot of people, yeah, this issue kind of started at 7th of October, but this has been going on for a long time, well before that. So Basma, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a really a pleasure to have you on, not only as a Palestinian, but also as an academic, a human rights activist. And you've been doing this for, for 14 years. So you really, you're not one of the 7th of October people who just know the story on that day and nothing else. So it's really, really great to really have you on. Um, you're actually living in, in Britain right now as well. So yeah. as a Palestinian living in Britain, how do you personally feel? We, I mean, I spoke about social media, but there's also legacy media as well, which we're talking about actual news agencies. So that could be legacy media, it could be online, it could be print media. How do you feel that the West is actually reporting on the conflict? How do you feel about it generally? Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for asking this very important question. Actually, I will start by, I find really a dehumanizing language and narrative mm. and representation of the Palestinian voices and the Palestinian experiences and suffering in the uh, reporting about the conflict or 
not the conflict actually the mass displacement yeah, it's a massacre and, yeah and genocide of people of Gaza so i do see that we are portrayed palestinians are portrayed as numbers as uh, either two ways on the extreme victims or sorts of terror um but uh, but we don't have no no understanding for the context, no understanding, or correct understanding, mm. or to understand the history, uh, the present, and how it might how it impacted the present and the future. Mm. So it's uh, and uh, double standards, uh, how they use the language, how they describe the situation, describe the victims, describe the the uh, the, uh, the results of the uh, of the what's happening in Gaza, like the mass displacement and mass killings, and portraying Palestinians as only numbers, no faces, no history, no stories, no genres, hmm. uh, just trying to put them into categories of victims or sorts of terror, no midway, so yeah. This is like, you know what, this is so many things that you've mentioned right now, and it's all, you know, this, this, this has been going on for years, yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like the one kind of positive thing that I can walk away with right now especially within light of what you've just said agencies medias will try their best to sell a narrative first of all by boosting a narrative which they feel like they want to boost and suppressing a narrative which they want to which you've just mentioned whether that's through certain language whether that's through labeling or numbering things in a certain way, whether that's literally through false reporting. I mean, I, I think BBC just released some interview where the subtitles were completely incorrect. They mentioned uh, a, cert- a certain uh, group and they didn't even mention that in the first place and it was just complete and utter shambles. They removed that post. A lot of these things which are being done in a very discreet and subtle way. But the amazing thing is that I feel like, I'm, I'm still young, but I've, I feel like this time, the population of the world that are truly humanitarian, that truly f- feel for freedom, they're not letting it go. Every single time the media decides to try and pull a, a stunt or try and pull a trick on, on the people, the, 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 the pro-Palestinian activists, the influencers, the Muslims, the, all of the humanitarians, they will stand up and they will literally call them out straight away. So they cannot even get away with it. They cannot even hide from it. However, this doesn't stop the fact that they are actually doing this shamelessly. In fact, they are shamelessly doing this. And perhaps for us here in Britain, we can say that it's wrong, that they should not do it, and it's not nice. But that's not the end of it. How harmful is this in reality? Because how harmful is this misinformation to the actual Palestinians who are living in the West Bank and in Gaza and in Khan Yunus who are in the refugee camps who are trying to just stay alive? How is this misinformation actually affecting them as well on the ground? Yeah, thank you so much for this question. Uh, very important indeed. Actually, uh, like the misinformation is really very harm- harmful and really the well-being and the sense of agency, sense of self-determination and how Palestinians see themselves and how Palestinians feel that the world sees themselves as well or see uh, their issue or their concern on their plight or or, um, or experience. So uh, Palestinians might might feel, uh, actually they said it multiple times, that they are left behind, forgotten, uh, they are invisible, so... Mm invisible, voiceless, nameless, um, um, and also uh, just numbers. So nobody cares about their stories, their genes, 
their history, their present, the dream, their dreams, like their houses, what they have built in their life. So the wrong information actually and the disinformation really take the agency, the sense of agency of people, particularly for the people who don't understand the context, who don't mm-hmm. understand. Because if you want really to understand the real issue and the real causes of the problem, you need to understand, you need, when you understand the real causes of the problem and the problem itself, you will understand or you will promote a really and convenient, comprehensive solution. But if you, if Palestinians, the misinformation is portraying Palestinians as humanitarian cases, only depending on assistance, only need assistance, they don't have agency, don't have determination, they don't have the right even to have to self-determination or to be agent or to live in dignity, to live in peace, to live as the other human beings. So the, con- the continuation of using this dehumanization language everywhere, mm. everywhere, in the academia, in the media, yep. in, the bu- in the public sphere, makes people, makes Palestinians feel that they should be blamed, that, that the victims should be always blamed, that they don't have voice. Uh, and they don't have names, and they are just numbers to the people who are far away from them and don't understand. So the more misinformation is really harmful because Palestinians can become to a point that they justify, they need to justify their humanity, their their fighting, their raising awareness. They have to justify that we do exist, we are humans. And this is very serious, and this is inhumane as well. Because Palestinians are, are like as many human beings. They are equal. They want to live in dignity. They want to live in peace. They have dreams. They love. Uh, they dance. They cook. They like education. But you, you reach, because the level of this information is very high, you reach to a point that Palestinians everywhere, was Bank, Jews, and Gaza, in the camps, they, want, they feel that they just need to justify themselves to the other people, that we are human, we are... Yeah we are kind, which is really harmful, and we shouldn't. Uh, we should break the cycle. We should really start to humanize Palestinian narrative and Palestinian. Yeah, it, we should really have learned from history. When we look at the apartheid, we look at the black history of of those who were enslaved. It's very difficult to justify uh, the killing of people, the enslavement of people, treating people like animals. You can't do it. The only way you can do it is if you can successfully create a narrative within the, the mind of the populace that these people are not humans. And this is kind of what you're talking about. You're talking about the fact that there is a narrative out there that is trying to dehumanize these Palestinian people who are normal people. They are, in fact, not just normal people. There is a very high education count in Palestine, for example, when it comes to medicines and sciences. And it, this effort, when we look at the apartheid in, 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 in the past, where they were able to almost justify that, you know what, Africans, black people, they're the second class. We, that's why we're treating them like that. And it's almost as if we haven't learnt from that. We're repeating it, the same narrative. We are killing these people. We are bombarding these people. We're going to say that these people uh, are terrorists or whatever they are because they're not humans. They're, this is the narrative that you, that you are saying that they are going to try and push and they are doing that. And like I said, fortunately, there is a very strong voice against it as well and hopefully that will pay off in, in due time. But I want to touch on one other thing here, living in Britain. I think right now we have almost a march every week, maybe not even even if more. And I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen uh, a, a cause for which people are almost 
always marching for it again and again and again. I think Hosmot, um, that came on, the ambassador for Palestine in the previous address, he came out and he, he was in London and he said, uh, we thank you for coming out again and again and again because it's so relentless that people not just coming to these protests once, not twice, they're coming every single week. But what is happening? Uh, uh, Basma, they are saying uh, that these protests are hate marches, that they are actually hate marches. What do you have to say about this? Actually, I, I reject uh, these statements that these protests are hate uh, marches or protests. I was in every protest and actually I saw people coming from all different uh, paths and backgrounds of life and like from different families, ethnic colors, uh, social, political, educational background. They just want to come in a very peaceful way to mm-hmm. call and to seek, uh, to seek and spread peace and love. And even I saw Jewish, I see British, I see many different nationalities. They just came to speak up for every Palestinian woman, man, uh, child. And um, they were calling uh, for love, um, peace, uh, ceasefire. And actually I saw these marches as a beautiful uh, show of the real meaning and the meaning and the impact of solidarity, compassion, care, humanity in action. So these are not only values. People were trying to go and they were showing these in action, being loud, clear, and proud to send messages of hope, support, peace, love, solidarity to Palestinians in Gaza and in West Bank. And actually, as a Palestinian myself, I always... I always felt that I am really extremely supported and proud emotionally mm-hmm. and in these marches because I felt as a Palestinian and all my followers, by the way, all the Palestinians who live in Britain have the same kind of feeling that when we go to the protests and when we see the protests on the media, we feel supported and we feel that Palestinians in Britain and Palestinians everywhere are not and should not be left alone. Mm-hmm. And we were saying in COVID, that we are all in this together. Actually, the protests have shown the Palestinians in Gaza that you are not alone and we are all in this together, even if we are far away from you miles by miles. But the heart, the prayers, and the actions, we are doing our best to stand, to speak up for you. You are not voiceless. Hmm. We are voiceless. Yeah, and we must. And we must do this because, you know, it would... Maybe if you spoke to the layman and you told them that somewhere out there, there genuinely are groups of IDF, groups of Zionists who are literally saying death to the Arab. They're saying death to these filth and they want to see innocent people die. Maybe they wouldn't believe them. They'll be like, this is not even possible. Why would someone say this publicly? But we have actual evidence. We have records. We have verified reports and video evidence of these people who are actually uttering these exact words that we want these people to die. We want their children to die. We want them to be, God forbid, I won't even use the words that they are mentioning. I could literally pull them out right now, quote for quote, these members of the IDF that would actually feel like this when they go out and they attack people in Gaza. So here we have on the one hand, these people who barely anybody reports on, by the way. And we have then those who are innocent living in Gaza being portrayed as basically animals. And and you, Basla, did mention this. 
that in the beginning, this is a dehumanization attempt. It's almost as if we're forgetting about these people's families, their history, their past. And for if you speak to a layman, you speak to a person, the first thing they're going to say is, well, 7th of October, Hamas went and they started the battle in, in Israel. Therefore, this is only their fault. And this is why we must now justify the killing of all of these people in Gaza. And they completely forget the bigger picture behind everything. And, it, and of course, it's a lack of education, but it's also a heap of misinformation. So we are turning to you, Basma to give us this insight and give us information. It's absolutely vital. This is the time and the moment to do it. Can you tell us about before 7th of October as well? Because that story doesn't get told enough. Well, can you tell us the control that Israel has over the Palestinians before the 7th of October? And why the IDF, IDF are now claiming that there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza? What's going on here? Uh, okay, thank you so much for this question again. So Gaza um, uh, in 2006 have been under the uh, real blockade, like sea, air, and uh, land blockade by uh, by the Israeli forces, and it has been also isolated from Palestine, from the West Bank, and and during that period, like from 2008 to, two, uh, to, to 2023, I guess they have suffered from seven aggressions, actually, and 17 years of serious blockade. Like, I will tell you some of the, uh, some of the control or the suffering of people from Gaza. So people from Gaza, actually, because of that blockade, they were prevented from the freedom of movement within uh, Palestine, and going to West Bank and Jerusalem, and even outside, traveling outside uh, Palestine. If they want to do that, they have to seek mil- uh, permission, military permission, and they might not be um, have access to this uh, freedom of movement. So people in Palestine cannot travel to Gaza, and people in Gaza cannot travel outside. Uh, so, so many patients, for example, many patients, particularly serious uh, and chronic diseases like cancer, mm-hmm. have been uh, not allowed to travel outside Gaza to, uh, spread to seek uh, to seek treatment. Like in 2020, uh, 2022, actually 64% were only uh, from the cancer hmm. uh, were only allowed to exit Gaza for treatment. Wow. So people actually, a lot of cancer patients, unfortunately, were killed because of that lack of freedom of movement and allowance. Second, uh, not all actually um, 78 of uh, uh, sorry. Like more 1.3 million of uh, 2.2 million uh, people from Gaza, which means 62 of the people in Gaza require food assistance. So not all the food and not all the all not all all the drinks were allowed uh, to go to Gaza. So uh, certain portions and certain quantities and certain type of food actually were allowed uh, to enter Gaza. And every, like every portion, every staff w- or would like to enter Gaza, it was under control inspection. Right. And let me, let me uh, just uh, continue this. So, yep. I guess it was before, uh, before the, the, the current war, it was an open concentration camp. So, um, the blockade accelerated the development in Gaza, rehabilitated the infrastructure, shattered Gaza's ability to provide for its people. Uh, education, health, food, water, like um, I remember two truckloads of commercial goods were allowed to Gaza in, in every month in 2009. Uh, for example, allowing 50% of fishing water for fishers from the Gaza coast. Um, 
70% of the, uh, the pipe water in Gaza is unfit for human consumption. So that, like, it was a limited, the limiting number of people, limited number of uh, goods, goods that are allowed in and out through uh, the Israeli military roofing. So it was under a serious really blockade um, until people with all these difficult circumstances, life was beautiful in Gaza, people were really living, celebrating their life, uh, getting proper education, trying to thrive in their life, have dreams, they want to continue. Uh, it was really tough before, and now, um, now us, uh, during the war, it's, it really deteriorated, the situation mm-hmm. has... I mean, of- I mean, the story that you're kind of telling here, I, I really wish that we could hear this more and more often, because this really is not just words... This is not just words of the media that are dehumanizing. This is action that is dehumanized a people for a prolonged period of time. And this is something that we perhaps don't hear about enough, but Alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, now we do have a very strong community online that is beginning to speak up about this, including you. You're speaking up about this and advocating for this as well. And of course, the people should not stop and must not stop in allowing this to settle down. Basma, thank you very much for coming on today, giving us your personal and professional insight and letting us know what is going on with regards to the effort for the Palestinian Ghazan people? Jazakallah khair. We speak, hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Until then, assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you and have a great day. That was Basma Adduhi, who is a Palestinian academic, a human rights activist, and a humanitarian practitioner. And she's been doing it for more than 14 years. And you can see that because she's able to give us, <coughs> sorry, almost a very good in depth timeline of what's been going on. And we want to know this and educate ourselves on these issues as well. We mustn't remember, even if you don't look too back, far, far back, we know that recently Gaza just went through an electrical and water and medicine blockade. A blockade! of basic necessities of people that are just living there, women, children, elderly. And not only did that cause, obviously, the obvious side effects of what you would imagine, but lack of infrastructure and water creates disease. It creates a a, a kind of chain reaction of many issues that perhaps a lot of people would have ignored otherwise. We must not forget that these things are happening and we must consciously remain aware of that. Anyway, we're going to have to move on because there's so much to talk about right now. We actually have with us on the line right now, Dr. Ala Suriya, who is a Palestinian and a senior lecturer in sociology at the Lancaster University. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on this evening. It's a pleasure to have you on today, not only as a Palestinian, but we're hopefully going to get some expert insight from you as well. Now, of course, first of all, um, can you tell us about the sociologists in solidarity with Palestine group and why you actually felt the need for this to actually come together uh, in the first place? Absolutely. So we're only about a week old so far. We've just set up very, very recently. Um, We're a small collective of sociologists working across the UK. Um, And we've all, as individuals, since the start of the violence, we've been speaking out about what's been happening within our institutions, Mm -hmm. to politicians who represent us, etc., in public forums. But we noticed that while 
many individuals in our discipline, in our universities, are doing so. We feel that it's not being reflected in some of the formal collective statements and actions from our universities and our professional bodies. So we wanted to push for that to change. Okay. Um, so that's really why we set up and we, we are kind of, as well as our initial statement, we're looking to um, do some concrete actions, particularly around education, um, to, to make people a bit more aware about what's happening and, and what we need to be doing as, as sociologists to, um, to talk about these issues. Of course, and I think that takes a, a lot of courage, to be fair. So thank you very much for doing that, especially in this climate. It, it, we appreciate every single voice that is standing up and speaking in the favour of justice. Um, and perhaps that should be said of others, but it isn't being said. I mean, there is, as of, as we stand, a silence on ceasefire here in Britain, which is quite surprising. I don't know if it is surprising. But why do you think that whether it's the government or whether it's other British-based organisations, that they are slightly reluctant, let's say, uh, to condemn Israel's action or to call this out as a genocide? Absolutely. There is a reluctance to speak. Um, we, we've we noticed that in our interactions, in our pressures on, on um, our organisations to speak. I think one of the biggest fears is uh, the possibility of being branded as, as what's you know, it's one-sided and what's often presented mm. as, a, as a conflict between two supposedly sort of equal sides. And right. I think within that, there's also the fears of being branded as anti-Semitic, yeah. this kind of conflation between anti-Zionism and, and anti-Semitism right. that, that we see. I mean, that's interesting that you do do voice that. Um, mm. As of, I think it was Lord Pickles in the, Daily, in the Sunday Telegraph recently, who published an article about anti-Semitism uh, himself mm-hmm. stating that there isn't actually a broad enough de- de- definition of anti-Semitism as of yet. And he did state a, a, a definition of it. And one of that, part of the, obviously we already know generally what it means. And part of that definition actually included that any kind of conversation or talk about Israel per se, or the state of Israel, could also potentially be considered part of that. So I think people are afraid that they, if they do, let's say, challenge Israel's policy, or their political affairs, even they may be branded as anti-Semite, and the, and the, and in, that's probably why some people are afraid. But in the same way, you have a country like Pakistan, for example, which let's say arguably in, in a similar way, just like Israel, was also founded to give a, a Muslim state of people independence in an albeit different way. And I I, I wouldn't be a, I don't think I would find a single person uh, anywhere who I would sit down in the room with and say to them, well, you know what, I'm gonna sit down over a cup of tea with you and talk about Pakistani politics only for them to be branded as an Islamophobe. I would find that quite bizarre. But anyway, yeah. I think there is this fear out there and you've quite correctly pointed that out. Uh, but what, of course... What I would just, yeah. Sorry, what I would just add there is also for universities specifically, so I think probably the definition you're talking about is the Anti-International Holocaust Remembrance Association mm. definition, IHRA. A lot of universities have been under pressure to adopt that definition um, in their recognition ah, in, as okay. a working definition of anti-Semitism, which is why specifically in universities there is there is sort of fear and concern mm, about mm. speaking out. Okay. Yeah. And that, um, so at least we know what the background behind that is. And that's why I said it from the beginning, that it takes a certain amount of courage to actually speak up about uh, this at the moment. So thank you very much for that. But do you actually think, I mean, right now, there are a lot of people talking about it. Personally, I don't think I've ever seen this much interest, public interest in Palestine ever. 
whether it's on the roads, whether it's on social media. Um, and that's currently happening now. But do you think that before October the 7th, before you know all of this kind of came to the attention of the, of the world, um, there was enough attention, uh, particularly with regards to the human rights activation uh, with regards to Palestine? Um, yeah, absolutely not. There has, I mean, there's been, you know, focus on brief periods, perhaps during wars, um, you know, where it's made the mainstream news. But the, I mean, the racism that we see in the in the language used to describe Palestinians during the current violence, language like human animals, children right. of darkness, that reflects how Palestinians have been seen and treated yeah. on a day-to-day basis in Israel and the occupied territories, whether it's um, the violence that they experience from settlers, um, the... Um, the children being, you know, dragged through military courts. It's a day-to-day violence that we just don't hear about um, until the current, you know, the current um, situation where some of this is, is, is coming to light and being people are being made more aware about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost like, even now, I just can't get my head around it because I'm just like, mm. clearly, clearly, if someone's calling someone an animal, they're calling them dogs. They're calling, they're saying death to the Arabs, for example. And they're saying it publicly as well. They're not even like, let me try and hide this, by the way. Yeah. yeah it's like, yo, I'm saying this, everybody listen up. Let me let me promote this video, by the way. <laughs> you would imagine that someone of calibre, of authority, would stand up and speak against it. But it's just kind of, I don't even know if shocking is the right word at this stage. To, to describe the kind of silence or the kind of, like what you've almost described it as a reluctance to talk about it and and that kind of I just don't know I don't know how to describe that but I am I am really you know positively charged to see that there are a lot of humanitarians around the world like I said it's unprecedented how people have come to the roads how they've gone online how we're not letting a single thing slip any mm-hmm. kind of misinformation gets caught out straight away you know this is something that you know like I said is, is amazing to see um, but it's it is still happening uh, especially, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people that have their views on how it's being reported here in the West, for example. Um, but as a Palestinian yourself, and also as someone living in Britain, how do you feel about the the reporting that's that's been going on mm-hmm. uh, from the Western legacy media and online? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah, it's variable depending which media or yeah, organization. Yeah. But I think the level of dehumanization, the you know, treating Palestinians as masses, whereas Whereas, you know, as we talk about Israeli children, but Palestinian people under the age of 18 or whatever the kind of um, phrase was used, um, it, it's, it's very hard to hear, to watch, to listen to the kind of questioning of the numbers and evidence from Palestinians, but not, you know, but not from Israel. Um, it's, you know, it's presented as something, as, a, as I've said already, you know, conflict between two sides, really, rather than when one side is mm. a state army and nuclear power against people who have been colonised um, and, and are seeking to live. Um, but I think, you know, there is, I think, what, you know, what you said already, that people, they are being held accountable in somewhat in their reporting by Palestinian journalists, um, by Palestinian you know, civilians living in Gaza and West right. Bank who on social media are showing the reality of what is happening. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and I'm really glad that, you know, by the grace of God, that's actually happening. Um, but here in the West, I mean, not just here, I think Wild has recently just got a lot of majority votes there. Here, I've seen Tommy Robinson's back. He's in jail right now, mm-hmm. but he's back. <laughs> so oh, there, there is yeah. a, a, a slight rise, I would say, that that's being... Um, you know that's being very nice about it in in the kind of far right narrative let's say in in mm-hmm. Europe 
Um, do you think that this is something to do with the disinformation that's out there? I mean, absolutely. I think that just the level of 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 denial, um, of the you know dehumanisation of Palestinians, it makes it very easy to, for for not just you know the far right, but actually for mainstream political parties and governments to 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 accept that kind of narrative, to accept yeah. what are you know extremely anti anti Islam anti Arab racism being normalised in this in mm. this context. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean it's been you know the far right has been on the rise for for some time now, but um, but certainly you can see this sort of disinformation at work in the mm. in the kind of narratives that they're putting forward. Right. I mean, we've, we've, I've kind of asked you these questions, I guess, more so as you being a Palestinian. But as a sociologist, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, although maybe, I don't know how to exactly compare these and whether we should or, or whatever, that's a different question. But the apartheid, we've had the Holocaust in the past. There are there have been people that have drawn parallels. There have been those who haven't. But the, mm-hmm. forget it all for just a second. Why on earth haven't we learned from history? I mean, why are people just doing exactly the same thing? I mean, well, one thing is that I think one thing what I would say is that, you know, we actually have to look at the history and that's something that sociologists, you know, <laughs> yeah. do. I mean, that we, it didn't start on October the 7th. It's, just, it's like starting a book on like chapter yeah. four or chapter five. We actually have to know the history. Right. Um, and, and we have to recognise, you know, what we do as sociologists is we, in, we investigate social inequality and structures of power. Um, and we take a critical stance at that. So we have to look, you know, in whose interests are certain a certain events happening, a certain narratives being put forward. So mm. it's really, you know, what, what can we learn from history? So much to learn from history. Um, right. I, I think almost yeah. what you're trying to say for me, what I'm walking away is, 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 is social media has come with a blessing and a curse because it's almost made it so easy for just, you know, anyone to pick up social media and just think that that is going to be education. And then, then not to feel like they have to actually pick up a history book or go and actually look or delve into it any deeper. And, and that, yeah. like I said, could be a blessing because you might fall upon some genuinely beneficial information, but most of the times you might actually not and walk away mm-hmm. with a narrative, which is probably very far from the truth. Um, but that, of course, like you said, comes down to us actively wanting to educate ourselves. Dr. Ala Salia, thank you very much for coming onto the show today, giving us your you. Palestinian insight and your sociologist insight it was wonderful to hear and we hope to have you on again sometime soon until then assalamu alaikum thank you very much thank peace be upon you thank you so much for having me thank you very much that was dr ala sariya who is a palestinian of course and senior lecture lecturer in sociology at the lancaster university we've we've, we've learned a lot so far i think with regards to kind of what's going on with misinformation out there intentional unintentional Time will tell. Like I said, there's already a lot of things out there. If I showed you, you wouldn't even believe me. It's just gotten that far already. It's like, I don't even have to try and sell this story. If I was a journalist right now, I'd have my work cut out for me. I'm not a journalist though. But anyway, the point is, it's getting that bad. That it's it's shameless. That, that's what I would describe it as right now. We've got Keith McHenry on the line with us right now. He's a co-founder of Food, not Bombs, to talk, speak to us about exactly that. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace be upon you, Keith Thank you very much for coming. How are you doing right now? Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm doing as well as you can. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, Witnessing this horror that is happening in Palestine. Yeah. I mean, 
we are seeing it and partially we're seeing it like I said for, for the first time a lot to a degree you have a lot of Palestinian journalists that some willingly and some unwillingly are actually able to report from there and show us exactly what is happening um, but that's what they're reporting we also have Western journalism as well which is also doing their reporting and perhaps there are those who will argue that they are actually unwilling or perhaps they're unable or perhaps they shouldn't uh, report in a in a way that's partial or impartial on, should I say, on Israel and Palestine. Do you think that's true, that there is an impartiality or a lack of in the, in the narrative of Western media? Oh, the Western media is so totally, uh, um, generally, generally pro-Zionist and pro the, the genocide. Hmm. Um, although there are jinx in that in, in U.S. media, yeah. uh, and we've seen that a bit with some of the BBC. Yeah. So, I think part of that is just the fact that uh, there are people on the ground that you can follow from uh, Gaza who will send you accurate information. And I think mm. that's why there's such a concern to right. shut down things like TikTok and, and yeah. X and so on. I mean, that is actually happening. And I actually, Keith, I did want to ask you this. It is a bit, a bit of a tangent, but I feel like even though, yeah, um, we we started off on 7th October with the Telegraph and the Sun and these people and these so, so and forth reporting about beheaded babies and 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 whatnot and then you had this report coming out recently about Apache helicopters and whatnot but at the same time yeah I, I watched Ross Atkins I think it was a week ago or, or two weeks ago on the BBC reporting on um, a video that they were debunking about a, I believe it was Shifa Hospital I could be wrong where they were actually taking a narrative siding with the Palestinians and I, th- I thought I'd, I'd, I'd actually was quite surprised about that I'd never seen that before but do you think that this slight shift in allowing sort of a pro-Palestinian narrative to creep in could be as a result of the fact that they literally don't have a choice because the information and the footage that's coming in from Gaza Khan Yunus showing the obliteration of the people there is just so undeniable that they have to just kind of compromise with it or is something else? I think else? there's that. Well, I think that's one of the reasons, but and the massive giant protests all over the world that you can't <laughs> yes. possibly um, completely ignore. Hmm. But the but I think also that the the Israeli propaganda, particularly when they first entered into Gaza with journalists, was so um, you know stupid hmm. that the arrogance <laughs> of the of the yeah. Zionists. You know, to 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 show things like a calendar yeah. on a wall, yeah. and it's just like it was insulting to the to the frontline journalists. You know, they're like, "Wow, we have to report this completely um, moronic information." Mm. Uh, so I think that that kind of, and I suspect that then what happened is the people that were, you know, BBC uh, reporters and so on that were embarrassed by what they were told. About, the IDF, hmm. um, you know, they they got withdrawn in many cases, and then new new people who would go along with the program um, replace them. Hmm. It is it, it's also the censorship of uh, you know there's there's something that is very bizarre about, for instance, the the kidnapped children flyers hmm. that are posted around all over the world, but mostly in the United States. Yeah. And then there's apparently somebody standing there yeah. waiting for somebody to tear them down yeah. or they're being paid to tear them down. Hmm. And I mean, 
it, it, that's such so when you see that propaganda thing happening and then the next tweet is the actual you know people being pulled from rubble in gaza it, it it's uh it's it just only reinforces mm. the, the the fact that the information coming out of the IDF and, and Netanyahu's office and so on, it's just totally nuts, you know, that it's not, you know, you can't call bombing, you know, that many people, 20,000 civilians to death, self-defense in front of the whole world. This could be the changing, uh, a big change in the perceptive, you know, I, anybody that's been to Palestine, their hearts go go out to the people being killed because we've seen apartheid, we've seen the inhumanity uh, of Zionists in in Israel. Um, mm. My friends in Food Not Bombs in Tel Aviv were telling me, "Wow, if you want, you can go shoot a Palestinian to death. Nothing will happen to you. But wow. if we kill a dog, we're going to have to pay twenty thousand shekels." Wow. And that dehumanizing attitude is why I think the, the Israeli media can put out um, such incredibly uh, poor propaganda, and they expect everybody to believe it because they don't perceive Palestinians as humans. And wow. I think that's at the root of the cause. You know, when you see that uh, a defense minister calls the Palestinians, uh, we're, we are fighting human animals on, on, on October 9th. He's saying that. not and, and, and so many U.S. politicians are essentially claiming that the Palestinians are not human. It's it's just it's outrageous. It is. It is. It's, and it's absolutely bizarre that they're able to get away with it. Yeah. But for a large part, as we know, Keith, um, there is obviously a massive force that is out there, as we've already mentioned, countering that narrative as we speak. And perhaps I think, uh, as you men- mentioned, I mean, the next question I was going to ask you was that, have you seen any kind of common trends when it comes to spreading disinformation, when it comes to various social injustices in the past, other political strifes? But uh, the question maybe I should ask you, I think, is this, maybe more of a positive one. What is the difference, rather, in what's happening now compared to what's happened in the past with Palestine and also other situations? Because what I can sense... I mean, perhaps you've sensed it, sensed it as well, is that there is, for the first time, some kind of a shift in the perception of people about Israel and their willingness to take what they say at face value. Is that something that's changed? That definitely has changed. So, for instance, in the 2014 uh, massacres of Gaza, um, there was virtually, you know, the people that I stood with on the streets against that, there were very few people, you know, and, and this is much, much different. And and I think that um, the, the, the arrogance, again, use that word, of the people in power, both in the United States, of Biden, who was gaslighting us all the time about our economy being great while we're, you know, struggling to just to survive. Um, it, it just, people, I think in part, the, the amount of lies that have come out of uh, of the mainstream media around every single issue, and um, you know, like from health effects, uh, uh, you know, like from health measures surrounding COVID to the war in Ukraine to the fact that our economy is supposed to be great now, and and so on. Mm. 
has has created such distrust. No matter what side you were on any of these issues, right. you could see that the people in power were manipulating events, uh, not in our benefit. And mm-hmm. I think you know that there is a. I think that has played a huge role. And again, back to the fact that the propaganda is so outrageous in comparison to what you actually see from videos from Gaza or from the West Bank is it's just profoundly disturbing. And fortunately, young people, uh, particularly on TikTok and on, on X and so on, are seeing for themselves that what is going on is such brutality, and that's never been exposed. You know, in the, last, in, in the 2014 one, it was not mm-hmm. like journalists video t- sending videos out all the time, and so on. you had to really search for the the massacres of yeah. Gaza at that yeah. time. And now we can just see how um, incredibly brutal the occupation has been. Also, I think just the information about, for instance, the double standard with the with the uh, prisoners. Um, yeah. We you know like it's the reports are now that the uh, in the uh, prisoner exchange that basically Israel would not let people celebrate in the West Bank, yeah. um, particularly in, in occupied East Jerusalem, and they went out and arrested the same amount of young people uh, that were released within the same 24-hour wow. period. Wow. Um, I think that, that it's become really visible to young people particularly, yep. and for anybody that has access to social media right now, to see the double standard. Wow. I and I hope that this also moves into other areas of other genocides that the United States has been backing in, yeah. in, in other places like Africa, really you know, do. where they're just brutally killing people in Sudan. Perhaps this could be that catalyst and this could be that change. And in fact, you speak about TikTok, and, and I think TikTok actually released a statement saying that um, <laughs> we've received complaints that our, our, our algorithm is rigged because it is displaying an, an increased amount and volume of pro-Palestinian content. Uh, we must report that this is actually not the case and that actually our major audience, who is our youth, actually are pro-Palestinian themselves and that is creating the influx in that content itself. I think, the, like you said, this is something that's affected the youth uh, quite a lot in the way that they perceive what's yeah. going on around the world and that probably is something I mean this is where my next question to you is anyway obviously I think it's really obvious it would be a silly question to ask whether social media has influenced people's minds on this issue obviously it has um, do you think though because obviously this whole propaganda war let's call it that for, for a moment is all about strategy it's all about anticipating do you think that Israel even anticipated or that they even thought that this would have happened, that this kind of information, or let's say that first of all, their misinformation would be tackled to this degree, and that secondly, to counter it, true information would be, would be bombarded and disseminated like mad on uh, Instagram, X and Twitter. Do you think that they ever thought about this and strategized this? Well, you know, I think the problem for them is they live in an ivory tower. You know, they live in the, in this world where they're disconnected from real people, and so they had no they had no plan. It was obvious that it took for uh, several weeks before the the, the anti semitism campaign took off. Uh, you know that they were really trying to push that that automatically that if you're pro Palestinian, you were really acting pro supposedly pro Hamas, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. They were too. Sh- slow out the gate, even though they've been setting up this anti-Semitism, uh, um, yeah. you know, 
thing for for a long time. I I was targeted by the Anti-Defamation League along with other uh, left activists in San Francisco in a case called the uh, Roy Bullock, Tom Gerard spy scandal, where they smeared us and they were selling information to Israeli secret, you know, to Mossad and stuff like that, and trying to build like a whole like a grassroots movement of of local people to attack us for being pro-Palestinian, and this is back in the in wow. the 90s. So, um, you know, this kind of campaign of, of, of trying, you know, to disrupt uh, social movements to make sure they don't resist, you know, resist uh, Zionist ideas um, has goes way, way back. But I do think that you're right. They were like not, they were caught. They're just so arrogant that they, again, <laughs> you had name. <laughs> That they they did not uh, uh, predict. Yeah, know, they just think, well, we're in control of everything. Yeah, we'll just do what we want, Seems and everyone like will go along because they have always gone along before, and now they've been caught, uh, you know, with their so-called pants yeah. down. In this, I mean, it, it does it does seem like that, Keith. And um, you've mentioned what happened to you, the investigations that happened to you, and with this kind of anti-Semitism approach that they're now having to take. Maybe it's a kind of a a second approach, a plan B, I don't know. But here in the UK, we have the charity commissions who are now trying to solidify, fortify their their definition of what anti-Semitism is. And of course, nobody wants to advocate for anti-Semitism. The true meaning of it, which I would understand it to be, is to, to be hateful or to incite hate towards Jews. Of course, we're not talking about that right now. But what they are instilling into the definition is, is that potentially if you are going to challenge uh, Israel's policies, their affairs policies, it would potentially fall under anti-Semitism. Do you think that would be a fair policy to establish? Oh, yeah. So, for instance, the governor of of, uh, of New York State was equating a uh, the the, um, the the vigil, you know, this uh, sit-in at Grand Central Station by uh, Not In Our Name and Jewish Voices for Peace as an act of anti-Semitic terrorism. And, uh, in, in, you know, so they're, they're trying to equate anything that is, uh, you know, basically if you are, are you, even Van Jones, who's a person I actually uh, know for years now, you know, said accidentally something about uh, uh, stopping the bombing on Gaza. Then there was a huge chant, no ceasefire, no ceasefire, mm-hmm. um, you know, on, on the uh, um, mall on November 14th. And uh, it's just so ghoulish, you know, to, because what you're talking is kill more children, kill more Palestinians like you, they're not even human. And that's what's allowed the U.S. government, uh, Anthony Blinken and those people, Victoria Newland and the Israeli uh, government to just uh, think that, oh, we'll just, you know, since these aren't humans. We can just, just say whatever we want, and everyone will understand that they're not humans. And that's where the problem lies, is the people of the world realize that Palestinians are humans, have a beautiful culture, just like all the other beautiful cultures in the world, and therefore should not be getting massacred. Yeah, and, and I think basically. that they did not understand that people could see that Palestinians were real humans yeah. and not the cockroaches it's, or the human animals as they're hmm. being portrayed. I think it's almost as if they believe their own fabrication to the point where they're like, yes, we truly believe they aren't human and so should everybody else. And perhaps when everybody's turned around and said, well, actually, we don't agree with you, they can't rationally fathom why not. And uh, perhaps this is something that 
hopefully will ignite some kind of thought process in them. But as of yet, it doesn't seem to be the case. But we can continue and will continue to fight this narrative. Thank you very much, Keith, for doing that. And please continue to do that. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today. And we would love, and I'm sure we're going to have you on again sometime soon. Until then, peace be upon you. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Keith McHenry, who is the co-founder of Food Not Bombs. You can check him out on Instagram and Twitter, I believe, at Keith underscore McHenry, doing what he does. Obviously, we're coming to the end of today's show now. It's been a pleasure. You know what? It's been an absolute honor, rather, to be able to talk about this and just contribute even if it's this little and I want to end off by saying this we've already spoken about the fact that there are Zionist movements out there that are paying millions of pounds to fund videos content misinformation protests uh, so that 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 narrative is, is, is pushed out there now if you are able to do that same stuff for free if you are able to like a video share a video retweet an article attend a protest for free in the name of justice and freedom and humanitarianism then why shouldn't you do it because at the very least what you're doing is you're making the money of uh, those people who want to evil to prevail go to waste that's what you're doing you're countering an agenda that's funded by doing it for free so when someone says to you why are you doing this why are you doing that there's no point it's not going to make any achievement it's not going to make a dent you know that it will over time do that. So continue doing what you're doing and please never stop. And like I said, you can tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK or hit us up on the Instagrams on DMs to let us know how you felt about today's discussion. If you have anything to share with us, we can definitely bounce back on that. That is unfortunately the end of today's show and we're going to be back every single weekday Monday to Friday 4 to 6 p.m. for the drive time show. And like I said, it's always going to be a live show. We would love to hear what you have to say. Until then, we're now going to shortly take a short break at 6 p.m. We'll be back then, obviously, after that for our next proceedings. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much to our producers and our callers. Until next time, assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you.